Well, as Matt just prayed, if you'll open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, we'll, we'll look at the entirety of that chapter this morning. Joshua chapter 2. Before I read the text, let me pray again for the preaching of God's Word this morning. Father, I, I just echo what Matt pray that you would, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning. And Father, we pray that the preaching this morning come not simply with words, but Father, we pray your preaching would come with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read from Joshua chapter 2. It's 24 verses. Uh, it's a longer text, but we're, we're going to walk through that and then uh, we'll, we'll try to see uh, what exactly in Joshua chapter 2 it is that the Lord would have us see this morning. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Grace Church. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate, excuse me, shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to, to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, when you utterly whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters, all who belong to them, 
and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell the business, this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on, a, on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to which you have made us swear unless we have come into the land. You tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window, though, excuse me, through which you have let us, let us down and gather to yourself into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from this oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them out, excuse me, had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they relayed, related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. The setting that we find in Joshua chapter two, Tommy really laid out for us well last week. You know the history of Israel well. Moses leads his people out of Egypt. As is stated in our text today, they cross the Red Sea on dry ground and escape Pharaoh's clutches. But doubt sets in. The old sin of grumbling, much hated by the Lord, sets in and the generation that saw this miraculous crossing of the Red Sea wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Takes them far too long to end up at the doorstep of Jericho. Moses passes away and God brings Josiah, excuse me, not Josiah, Joshua into a position of leadership. Now we know in the text, Tommy laid out for us well last week, his sermon was entitled, New Man, Same God. Joshua is the new man, but the same God who had given the promised land to the people of Israel was still in control. Well, that's where we find ourselves today. This new man is here, Joshua. But the promised land still sat just across the Jordan. The same God who had given the promise to Moses 
stood ready to fulfill that promise and to give his people the land. The promise God had given to Moses is reiterated by Joshua in chapter 1, verse 13, when Joshua says, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord, your God, gives you rest and will give you this land. We know that Joshua believed this promise and displayed confidence in both God and his word because if we look back into chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Joshua commanded the officers of his people, saying, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan. Go in to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess it. Joshua's confidence is in the promise that God had given Moses. It's evident because he commands his officers to go stir up the people, to remind them, to be prepared that we're about to enter into this promised land. As if it was a done deal. God had promised it and we're about to enter into it. Never mind that there's this river that stands between us and the promised land. Never mind that when we get on the other side, there is this very well fortified city. According to chapter one, they needed to prepare themselves for battle. They put on their, their battle gear and they were commanded to take provisions for a fight. The obstacles that I just mentioned laid before them. The Jordan River at Jericho was deeper and wider than at other crossings, yet this is where God has them. And we know from chapter three, just one chap chapter ahead, that it just so happens to be the flood season of Jericho at that time. So not only is this the wider and deeper place to cross the river, but it's even wider and deeper than normal because it's flood season. In addition, in addition to this crippling obstacle of nature, an imposing wall protecting the enemy towered above the people of Israel. We also see in this chapter that the enemy is aware that Israel's presence is just across the river. They're not surprised in anybody. This is not a surprise attack. They've been there for months and Jericho knows they're there and they know why they're there. There's no surprise. Yet, despite the circumstances, Joshua believed the promise of God. But there are two sides to this promised land promise. Really, it's true of any promise. Yes, Promises must be believed, but the promise maker must fulfill the promise that has been made. There not only had to be a promise believed, but a promise kept. When the God of Israel speaks a promise, he also sovereignly carries out all that is necessary to fulfill that promise. It is this promise-fulfilling attribute of God that we want to zero in on this morning. So let me give you the, the primary aim of the sermon. The aim is this. We are to rest in the unstoppable providence of God. We are to rest in the unstoppable providence of God. Now we want to look at this morning, really, 10 ways that the unstoppable providence of God is evident in Joshua chapter two. 10 ways that the unstoppable providence of God is evident in Joshua chapter two. The first one is this, Joshua chapter two, verse one. 
Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. They have a mission. Sending forth spies was not a lack of faith on Joshua's part, but rather normal war preparation. Some people have suggested that because he sent spies in, he didn't really believe that God had given him land. That's just simply not the case. Moses himself sent 12 spies in to view the land that the Lord had promised to the people of Israel precisely because God commanded him to do that. And Joshua is simply following suit. God had promised victory to the people of Israel before, and that victory has often come on the battlefield. So just because God says he'll give you something doesn't mean that there won't be uh, anything required of you, that there may not be a fight or a war or a battle that you have to suit up and prepare for. We're commanded in Ephesians 5 to put on armor for a reason. The sending forth of spies was not a lack of faith on Joshua's part. Quite the opposite. It was evident that he was demonstrating obedience to God by sending spies into the land. Using spies to scout out the enemy land is normal activity to prepare for war. Sending spies into Jericho was not a lack of faith, but again, a demonstration of obedience to a promise believed. God's providence, number one, utilizes the ordinary means of life to fulfill his promises. So number one, the unstoppable providence of God utilizes ordinary means. So when God gives a promise and he intends to fulfill it, he uses the ordinary means of men to accomplish his purposes. Number two, God's providence chooses unwarranted people. God's providence chooses unwarranted people. Look with me again in verse one. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. Let's all be honest here. Nobody in this room expected a prostitute to be a hero in God's story. Not the hero, but a hero in God's story. Hebrews chapter eleven thirty one 31 says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. You can't make this stuff up. Hollywood's best writers can only borrow from the author of history to come up with its best story ideas. God uses a woman who is a notorious, ungodly sinner to help fulfill a promise that he made to his people. Think about that. God gives this massive promise. I will give you this land And one of the means that God uses to accomplish this is a prostitute. He chooses an unwarranted person to carry out his providence. It's unclear if Rahab was still a practicing prostitute at this point in her life or if it was simply a title or stigma that had followed her from her previous days, similar to Simon the leper in Matthew chapter 26, who no longer had leprosy, but was still referred to as Simon the leper. Perhaps Rahab the prostitute had long left that lifestyle behind, but here is still given that stigma. Perhaps she's still living that lifestyle when God chooses in this moment to intervene. It's unclear. 
Either way, it is clear that God has providentially gone before the two spies, raised up a woman of peace to, to receive and protect them. They were divinely directed to this particular house, though they were not aware of this God-given ally before entering Jericho. They had no idea where they were going to spend the night. But God led them to her doorstep. God's providence chooses unwarranted, unexpected people to both use for his purposes and to save for his glory. The third providence that I want you to see, God's providence thwarts enemy strategies. God's providence thwarts enemy strategies. Look with me in verse two. It was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now, I'm not second guessing these spies skills, but they didn't sneak into the land. They were fully aware. The king of Jericho was fully aware that they had entered into Jericho and not just entered into Jericho, but he knew exactly where they were. He knew to go directly to Rahab's house to find them. A vital part of warfare is accurate intel. So spies are sent out to do the dangerous work of going behind enemy lines to survey the land. Israel's presence just across the Jordan was no secret. So attempting to keep a watchful eye on anyone entering the city was to be expected. And the seemingly unfortunate news that the spies were observed entering the city and even the intel of their lodging location appears to doom the Israelite spies. It seems like that the favor has landed on the side of Jericho. They didn't sneak in. They were identified and located. And like the spies, when we enter into duty, for the sake of the gospel, we should not expect that we will be free from trials. We should not expect that the odds won't be stacked against us. We should expect that. God could have easily kept the movements of the two spies from the view of the enemy if he wanted to. They could have snuck in without ever being seen if that's what God wanted. But that's not what God wanted in this instance. He did just what he wanted. The 12 spies that had entered into the territory earlier all went in and came out without being caught. Yet, when you only send in two, they're found out. But God's sovereign script can't be known by us. Would the two spies have ever gone in if they would have known that their identity and location would have been uh, immediately found out? Probably not. But we don't know God's sovereign script. We just obey. He varies his methods as he sees fit in each new circumstance. And this both exemplifies his sovereignty and increases our dependence on him. And like the king of Jericho, the enemy, Satan never ceases in trying to undo God's plans. And yet he is met at every turn with defeat. So despite the intel and all that the king of Jericho had, he wasn't going to find the two spies. Despite all the enemies of God in this world and all their vile attempts to destroy the name of Christ, God's providence always thwarts the strategy of the enemy. The fourth thing that I want us to see is God's providence endures despite us. 
God's providence endures despite us. Look with me in verse four again. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they, where they were from. And it came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now we must enter briefly into a long-standing debate concerning the events of this text. And I must mention at the outset that I will not be ending the debate with my comments today. I know that full well. I've already quizzed about a dozen people in the life of the church on whether they think Rahab's lie to protect the two Israel spies was sin or not. Just to see where we were as a church on the, on the argument, on the debate. Were Rahab's actions, the lies that she speaks to protect the spies, sinful? Well, let's state biblical facts. God's word is plain. A lie is a lie. And he tells us we shall not lie. Such behavior is forbidden by God. Yet, at the same time, the New Testament teaches us that her actions were justified. James 2.25, in the same way was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. That's New Testament commentary on what happened in Joshua chapter 2. So let me state a few more obvious facts. In God's kind providence, we are rarely faced with such dilemmas as Rahab faced in this moment. I doubt any of us can come up with an instance in our life where we've been in Rahab's shoes. Perhaps, but I doubt it. Number two, God could have chosen to spare the spies of Israel a thousand different ways, but this is the way it unfolded. Another fact, God could have spared the spies even if Rahab told the truth. He could have. He's bigger than the king of Jericho. And it is bad theology to suggest that the end justifies the means. We don't want to be guilty of any of those things. But with all that being said, we should endeavor to always speak the truth. One. Two, we should not carry around with us a godlike complex that says we have the right to tell lies to accomplish higher purposes. We don't want to be guilty of that. We should always be wary of our own motives. So be careful before you jump on that band. Our godliest deeds would damn us if not cleansed by the atoning work of Christ, which by God's grace is exactly what God does for Rahab. We should, however, do everything in our power to protect the lives of others, especially those that God has uniquely placed in our care. We're, we're trying to hit all these angles of arguments that one would give. But let me say this. If ever faced with the dilemma like that of Rahab, let's pray now that God would give us his spirit to govern our steps if that day ever arrives. Let's not try to end the debate. Let's just ask God's Holy Spirit to give us help if we're ever in Rahab's shoes. Give us 
divine help. Time and time again, God gives his people the courage and the words in moments of crisis. Think about Peter in particular as he stood before the Sanhedrin, the people who had just a few days earlier crucified Jesus Christ. They were God-haters. And he stands to oppose them, to tell them about the good news, to tell them that this Jesus he, they just crucified is the actual son of God. It's by his power that this man that's standing in their presence has been healed. That's courage. That's the right words in the moment of crisis. This we all can agree on, no matter where you land on this old ethical debate. Even if Rahab was sinful in telling the lies to protect the spies, God's providence endures despite us. Number five, God's providence provides unseen protection. Look with me in verse six. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. God's providence operates secretly and silently sometimes. Sometimes it's abundantly clear. We all know, we see it full well, you can't miss it. And then other times it's unseen. We need not spend too much time anxiously considering all the ways that the enemy may take us down. I'm not saying to know the enemy and to plan accordingly is unwise. I'm not saying that. There's wisdom in that. But if you spend your whole life worrying about the enemy, then you've missed the point. We should trust that God has been carefully watching over us all along and that he has these unseen ways of providing for our protection. Even when our steps are ordered into severe difficulty, we can rest knowing that God provides for our ultimate protection. Matthew 10, 28, right? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. The death of Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins. We are no longer under the condemnation of God's just wrath, but made righteous in his sight. God has afforded us eternal protection through the blood of Christ. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were clueless, helpless, dead in our trespasses and sins, and unbeknownst to us, God was making a way for us to be saved. Matthew 6, 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is how God acts toward his people. God's provision provides unseen protection. These spies had no idea that God had set up their protection while they were in the land of Jericho. Number six, God's providence produces unexpected faith. God's providence produces unexpected faith. Look with me in verse eight. Now before they lay down, that's the two spies, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, listen to these words. I know that the Lord has given you the land. 
and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. And then listen to these words again. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Those are unbelievable statements made by Rahab. Why did God want Joshua to send spies into the city of Jericho? Was it just to scout out the land? Was it just to prepare this wise military plan? Could God have not just given them the land without military intel? We know the answers to these questions. Of course he could. But God sent Joshua's two spies into the city of Jericho because one of God's elect resided in the city. And God intended to spare Rahab. Joshua didn't know Rahab. And he certainly didn't know God's plan to save her, but he was obedient to follow his commands and send two spies into the land, just as Moses had done before him. I love what A.W. Pink says here to describe this particular part of Joshua chapter two. He says, when God works, he always works at both ends of the line, meaning God is at work in more ways than we could possibly identify. He was both sparing the Israelite spies and forging a path for the salvation of Rahab. He's accomplishing two things at once. And listen to me, there are probably a thousand more tributaries on, in what was taking place in that moment that I don't even know about. My mind's so unilateral. People who know me can testify to that. I couldn't possibly imagine in one single providential act of God, all the tributaries of his grace to humanity. But it's here in scripture. If we just go back and look at it again and look at it again and look at it again, guess what God does? He graciously shows us these tributaries. We see his sovereignty, we see his goodness. We see the love of God in ways that we didn't see in that initial reading. There's no reason a rebellious enemy prostitute should rightly see the events of her day as acts of the one true living God, but she did. In John chapter four, verse four, we are told that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. You remember that story? It wasn't the quickest way. It made no sense as far as maps are concerned, but it says in the text, he had to pass through Samaria. Why? because the path led him to a woman that he intended to save. If you are one of God's elect, though you may be, be but unbelieving now, God will set his loving heart of affection upon you. And like Rahab and the Samaritan woman of John chapter four, Jesus will sovereignly make his way to you. Listen, that's the story of us all. Who in this room hunted down God for their salvation. None of us. We were all like Rahab, sinners of the worst kind, not looking for God. And he does something 
to grab our attention. We talked about it last week in our high school rooted class, the effectual call of God. He does something to soften our hearts, to let us hear what we had been blind to previously. For years, you may have been fleeing God, but when the appointed time arrives, he will overtake you. It's what God does. And I'm tempted to stop the sermon now and give people in Grace Church an opportunity to share how God hunted them down, how he softened your heart and brought you into a saving relationship with the Lord. We could testify all day long. It would be sweet. And we see in Rahab the story of us all. Not only did Rahab belong to a heathen race, but she was also a notorious sinner among them. Even the people of Jericho would have looked down upon Rahab, and yet this is who God plucks out for salvation. And it's this woman who says, I know the Lord has given you the land. She believed. She had faith. There's an amazing reality in this one line. An entire generation of Israelites for 40 years, right, died out in the wilderness because despite being eyewitnesses to the Red Sea parting, being delivered from the people of Egypt and receiving blessing upon blessing while they were in the wilderness, guess what? They were unbelieving and they died in the wilderness. And yet here's this woman who didn't have any of those eyewitness experiences. She just heard about them and God grants faith. Based on the testimony of God's power at work, she believes. Joshua 2.11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. And then she goes right back into this glorious testimony mode. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. God not only melts the natural heart of rebellion towards him, but he also warms that same heart to the unsuspecting rebel to miraculously love and believe. Listen to me. We can put up whatever wall we want. We can be as unbelieving and hard-hearted as we want. And if God intends to save, if he plucks you out, he will soften that hard heart and he will grant you faith and repentance. He does it all the time. There are literally a hundred examples in this room as we speak. Dear listener, is God unexpectedly speaking to your heart today? Are you in this room an unbeliever who has not wanted God and yet here he is lovingly, graciously pricking your heart and mind again? Believe. God is real. He's relentless. His providence is certain. It's sure. And he will warm your heart to him. God's providence produces unexpected faith. Number seven, God's providence dissolves opposition's resolve. God's providence dissolves opposition's resolve. Verse nine, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us all and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we know 
excuse me, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. We, excuse me, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Though the heart of faith granted in Rahab is certainly the highlight of this text, make no mistake about it, what God does in Rahab's life is very central to the text that we're looking at today. I want you to see that we should not miss the works of God causes the enemies of God to lose courage. Unlike Rahab, when the rest of Jericho Jericho heard the testimony of God's power, they ran in fear rather than surrender themselves to God. Many men in those days of Jericho fell under terror for a time, but none of them repented and believed outside of Rahab and her family. Temporary alarm is not sufficient for salvation. You must repent and believe. When God softens a heart, those are the only two responses that you have. The providence of God causes the resolve of our opposition to dissolve. If you don't repent and believe, there's only one response to God outside of that. Be afraid. Be afraid. A day is coming. Be afraid. Number eight, God's providence grants merciful salvation. Verse 12, now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you. Here's the interaction between Rahab and the spies, this this oath, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all whom belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Rahab's faith compassionately led to the salvation of others. Scripture does not explicitly tell us who in particular were spared with Rahab. We get a list of father, mother, brother, sisters. We don't know how many there are. We don't know how many were in their households. But we do know, according to the agreement with the Israelite spies, that all who followed Rahab's instructions to shelter in her home were mercifully spared their physical life. We know that much. And we can say that Rahab's faith is certain. We see it in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, James 2. And apart from her faith, if she wasn't saved, none of her family would have been. Now, we don't know. It doesn't tell us how many in her family in the New Testament came to faith in Christ. It just doesn't tell us. But we could guess, we can make a sanctified speculation that her family would also put their faith in God, the God of Israel, And we know biblically and experientially that God often does that in households. Read through the New Testament. He saves households. It happens. Experientially, we've seen that flesh itself out in some of our own families by God's grace. But again, I'm helped by A.W. Pink 
on the subject here. Through his commentary on this text, he said, it is right that we should desire God to show mercy unto those who are near and dear to us. Not to do so would show that we are lacking in affection. It only becomes wrong, our expectation, when we ignore God's sovereignty and try to dictate to him rather than supplicate him. There's a difference. We don't tell God who to save. We appeal to him to save. We don't dictate, we supplicate. Parents, let me implore you not to make the mistake of dictating to God that he must save your children. Rather, supplicate, beseech, plead with God to be gracious to save them. That's the pattern that we find over and over and over in scripture. This beseeching, this pleading, this crying out to God. And it's the pattern that we find not only in scripture, but throughout church history. God's providence mercifully grants salvation. Number nine, God's providence supplies salvation's way. That's different than what I just said. God's providence supplies salvation's way. Look with me in verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet in the window through which you have let us down and gather to yourself into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from this oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I don't know if you see the gospel picture here, but it's here. There's one place in all of Jericho that is safe from the wrath of God. There's one place and one place only. It has a scarlet cord tied into a window and it's on the wall and it's the safest place in Jericho to be. It's the only safe place in Jericho to be. The men who made this oath with Rahab were unaware of God's predetermined plan to destroy the city of Jericho. They knew they were gonna have victory. They knew the land was theirs, theirs, they believed it, but they didn't know how God was gonna bring it about. They didn't know. They knew nothing of marching for seven days. They knew nothing about the massive fortified walls that would come crumbling down. No one did. And yet, they make this oath with Rahab. These two spies, along with Joshua and his officers, probably had all kinds of ideas how they may take the city of Jericho. But none of them were thinking that God would just cause the walls to crumble. And when the spies promised Rahab, who lived on that wall, that she would be spared in battle, they had no idea that God was bringing those walls down. 
Are you getting the point that I'm making? God was fully aware of all that would transpire and had already supplied the way of salvation for Rahab and her family. God doesn't just plan our salvation, but he supplies the way of our salvation. Now listen to me. The walls did crumble. I don't know if the walls of Rahab's house crumbled with it and somehow everybody inside was spared or if they remained standing and her family was just sitting safe inside in this one little portion of the wall. I'm not sure, but I know there was one safe place and it had a cord tied in the window. As believers, for all humanity, there's only one place to avoid the wrath of God. It's in Christ. It's the only safe place. You can put your faith in a lot of things. You can be a brilliant person. You can have wonderful ideas. You can do lots of good things. But none of that is going to stand. It's all going to come crumbling down like the walls of Jericho. And there's one safe place from the wrath of God. It's faith in Christ and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. It, it, that's it. It stands alone. God doesn't just plan our salvation, but he supplies the way. How does God save Rahab? He sent two spies in to tell her to tie a cord to her window. That's how he saved her. How does God save us? He sent one man to die on the cross so that we might be saved. The triune God determined Christ would provide our salvation. This is what Ephesians chapter one says about it. Think about Joshua 2. Think about our salvation in Christ as I read Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, where? In Christ, that one location with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For he chose us in him, that's the one location, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his presence. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons, through one person, Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the beloved one, one man, Christ. In him, that's Christ, the one place that we have refuge, safe refuge. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made, excuse me, and he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. There's one safe place, Grace Church. There's only one way to be saved. It's refuge in Christ. And just like the people of Jericho's day only had one chance at being saved from the wrath to come, the same is true for us. And God has supplied that way for us. Unless we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you have let us down, that one place. And like the blood of the Passover lamb, marking the door frames of God's people, he was spared from the death angel. So this scarlet cord would mark the window of God's elect spared from the, from the coming destruction of Jericho. Rahab's house, marked by God, was the place of refuge and safety. And ultimately, neither the blood of lambs at the Passover or this scarlet cord in a window would save the souls of any man, but rather the shed blood of Jesus is all that is necessary to cover those who believe and are spared from the just wrath of God. God's providence supplies salvation's way. And then the last one, we'll end with this. 
God's providence guarantees his promises. Verse 22, they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. And now the pursuers had sought them all along the road and had not found them. And then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to, jo- came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. As chapter two concludes, we see the finishing touches of God's providence played out in a single epic of history. Departures, arrivals, remaining in place, pursuits, crossings, comings, goings, returnings, all mapped out to the precise plan of God. Every detail exactly as God had ordered for his purpose or purposes that we could not sufficiently trace in a single sermon. And upon the return of the two spies, they declare, surely the Lord. Don't miss that first word, surely. With all certainty, you can count on it. Surely the Lord will absolutely, with full certainty, they knew God had acted and that God was giving them the land that he had promised. He will fulfill his promise. His plan was never in doubt. It was never in doubt because the eternal ruler of the universe, almighty God, was seeing it through. His promise was backed by the power of his unstoppable providence. And listen to me. That same unstoppable providence that God is putting on display in Joshua 2, he puts on display in Christ on the cross. His salvation for his people will not be stopped. You can count on it. It's trustworthy. It's sure. It's certain. God's providence guarantees his promises. So what's the application? Two, really fast. Remember the unwavering promises of God, particularly the promise of salvation in Christ. He has given us this promise. And number two, Rest in the unstoppable providence of God. It's Joshua chapter one, verse 13. Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Remember the promise that God has given us. And then this is what one thirteen says. The Lord your God gives you rest, faith, that he will give you this land, that he will see it through without a single hindrance. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that Joshua chapter two is loaded with gospel grace that we see in Rahab ourselves. Unwarranted yet elected by the love of God. And that we see in Rahab's house, this one place of refuge where God's people will be spared. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that you would open the eyes of the unbeliever to know that they cannot outrun God's ability to hunt them down with his love. And Father, as believers, I pray that you would, the same way that you granted us saving faith, Father, that you would grant us sanctifying faith, that we would believe in the providence of God. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.